You're listening to part two of the interview with Dr. Joshua Swamidas. No one imagines, even if they're an atheist and they don't think heaven exists, no one imagines heaven as a segregated city. Yeah. It's, and so, you know, so why are we okay with it here? I mean, you know, when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is done on heaven, we ask for his kingdom to come. That's a prayer for integration, and it's a prayer that we have not uh, not been having an easy time doing because in Taran, the inheritance of segregation is strong. Yeah, I, I should say I did encounter one group that thought that, but we would rightly place that group in the alt right. <laughs> they, they were they were there was this group called New Geneva back when blogging was a new thing. 2003, 2004, yeah, so 2005. There's, there's, there's they had that view that they called it kinism. So as not to be called racists, yeah, but it's what? a racist view. And they basically thought that, that uh, uh, the races need to be separate because that's how God created us. And they tie that back to Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth. So, yeah, and you the, know the there are three Jones. races. There are three races. Are you Bob Jones and what happened with that? You mean the, the first Bob Jones, the father of the originator? Well, so, there was, so, during, so there was a segregation. And so you know, in the way, same way, you know, we're debating a lot of political things right now in like the late 50s and early 60s, there was a large debate about segregation. I mean, it kind of culminated with the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. Um, There's a really critical sermon that um, I think it was given on Easter, actually. I'd have to go back and check if it was exactly Easter, but it was given by Bob Jones Sr., where the, the title of the sermon was, um, Is Segregation Spiritual? This, uh, this, uh, sermon was actually uh, transcribed put into pamphlets uh, given across the country to people it was <clears throat> it was on the radio and and he was really working out the question of you know what does scripture say about segregation and his view was that scripture taught segregation and it's yeah. interesting his position on this he says that the fundamental problem of race was that um, that um, and he pointed to to Acts 17, where it says that out of God made all, uh, made all the nations, out of one God made all the nations, and set up the boundaries between them. And so what he said is that we all descend from Adam and Eve, but God set up boundaries between the nations, and the big mistake we made is bringing black people here. And in yeah, a, that's, in a, that's the Kenneth view. Yeah. And, and, the, and what we need to do is return them to Africa. Yeah. And it also, it's really striking that it never really crosses his mind is, you know, maybe the big mistake we made was taking, um, you know, coming here from Europe and taking in the land from all the, all the Native Americans and transgressing those boundaries. That doesn't cross his mind. Right. Yeah, there's, it, it never even occurs to them to think, yeah, we were the ones who were where we shouldn't be. <laughs> he, exactly. White people. Yeah, he, he, it, it, bringing the black people here is the problem, but coming here as white people wasn't. <laughs> yeah. That's, and, you a, know, that's a really good like point. The, they'll be, they'll, it is also, remember, they're also, at this time, you know, America prides itself as being, uh, you know, a nation of immigrants. If those right. immigrants are from, from Europe, from Europe, not if yeah. they're from India or Asia or yeah. Africa, and this is codified in law as well, too, right? Yeah. So, um, and it, so there was a significant effort, and my, 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 my PhD advisor did some stuff on this recently. There's a significant effort among these early American settlers the from europe to distance themselves from their ethnic background and think of themselves as american but not irish american or not whatever they were i mean there were irish people among them then uh not irish american or 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 dutch american or whatever well, yeah that's the thing so basically it becomes like a, a it's a constructed social identity that sometimes people call white you can call it however you want it you, because at times that's just been synonymous with being american because the thing right. about it is really that, critical is it's actually codified in law. This is not um, this is this is not just the perceptions. It was codified in law. Yeah, not which, originally though. But that, that took time. That took time. But they they eventually did well, the start whole idea regulating is that who counted as white. Immigrants from certain countries are not actually fully American. 
Um, they, they not actually, you know, like, it, like part of the history is what happened even just over the last hundred years with Indians, like Indian Americans like me. Yeah. Yeah. There was a and, big famous case in early one in the late 19th century, one in the early 20th century about Chinese and immigrant, 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 I'm talking about the Indians. I'm talking Indian, about Indian immigrants. Right. And they were, they were, they actually got to the Supreme court. And the question was, are Indians white because of the, uh, Caucasus origins right isn't that caucasian and well you know um, we should probably do another podcast on on that because i got a lot to say about that story but the whole point is that um that yeah american was a nation of immigrants but not all immigrants it was right i mean this is and i'm not trying to say this as like some crazy liberal this is just a fact of the this is just factual yeah and yeah. and the Chinese case was also interesting because a court actually ruled that this Chinese guy was white because he's not black. Well, it's, they were thinking in a binary. Well, and it, then it got to the Supreme Court and they said, obviously, this guy is not white. <laughs> so well, they overturned it. That the, the divide and segregation was not white versus black. That is really important. It was white versus colored. And and but there were uh, what I'm saying is it's more complex than that at certain times. And, and the thing is, black people were given citizenship by that time. That's true, but we weren't. White people were, and black people were, but no one else was. So the hierarchy was not the usual way when it came to property ownership and things like that. California had a law. If you were white, you could own property. And if you were black, you could own property because they were forced to do that by the Supreme Court. But they didn't let anyone else own property. And these guys were trying to sue to get their property. So that yeah, well, like so I said, during segregation, that. it was white versus colored. Um, yeah. And that was meant to actually include, you know, Indian and Chinese and all that as colored. Like, you know, if we were still right. a segregated time, it's very clear that I would be in the colored community. I wouldn't be able to go to the white bathroom. I mean, this is yeah. the part where it's a little strange, right? Because we don't tend to think of Indians that way. Right now, we tend to think about Indians as, as like, like they're white people. But the fact of the matter is that that's how the law was set up. But regardless, the point is that, you know, we have is a situation where, you know, uh, you know, in American politics, we've been grappling that same question for a long time of trying to make sense of the unity and, and you know, diversity of humankind. And you have Bob Jones entering this conversation and he, he, he does something that's really important. He's like kind of the fundamentalist spokesperson. Yeah. Uh, and he puts a very clear mark on the ground. This just wasn't, this wasn't just a passing com- a comment. And he basically says that this is a matter, matter of scriptural authority and inerrancy. Yeah. That, that we maintain uh, segregation because scripture teaches segregation. The right thing would have been not to have had all these non-white people here. But now that they're here, we need to segregate. And so part one of the rules, for example, they have at their seminary is that you're not allowed to date. Um, you know, they have a well, ton of young, yeah. a, ton of, a ton of like a, of, um, there's mainly white people, but, you know, they're saying, well, you know, ideally we'd like to have a different, he says yeah, in they, the sermon, they had a ban ideally on, like on that, interracial different... dating until 2000. Yeah, 2000 is pretty late to revoke that, but that's that's when they finally got rid of it. Yeah, we, we ideally would like to have a different university for the black people to be at, um, but uh, w- with that, we're going to let a few of them into our university. And you know, he didn't say this in the sermon, but the basic idea was that you know we need to keep the separation of the races to respect uh, scriptural inerrancy in his view. And so the rule is that, you know, we're going to have all these uh, college students. They're there. I mean, and if you know much about Christian college culture, it's ring by spring. A lot of people are there to get married. And the whole idea is you cannot get married or, or date a person who is of a different race. Yeah. And that extended really till 2000. So, yeah. and I graduated to, to make it real. Like, I mean, I was in college from 96 to 2000. And right. it wasn't 2000 that they decided that that interracial marriage maybe isn't a threat to scriptural inerrancy. Right. I have a friend who went there and graduated in 94. <coughs> he was there during, or maybe it was 90, yeah, it would have been 94. So he was there during that, the end of that time. And he said there were discussions going on when he was there about that whole issue. There were a lot of people who resisted it. But um, it was, um, that was sort of fomenting. Yeah, well, you know, period. I think I think it's so really, he would have been there from ninety to ninety four or so. Well, I, th- I think I think it's a really important history to understand better because I think that it shows how we, in our fallen state, can even use things like scripture to justify real yeah. dehumanization of our brothers and sisters. And and it's no different from uh, uh, what's his name, uh, 
Dabney and so on with justifying slavery. It's a similar kind of thing. Now, it's it, interesting about how the story ends in a lot of ways. And I talk about this in my book is that uh, it all goes back to, uh, you know, so Bob Jones emphasized Acts 1726 out of one God made all the nations and set up the boundaries between their nation and set up the boundaries between them. Um, it's that verse that Ken Ham, you know, president of Answers in Genesis, a person I disagree with with quite a bit, lays down a big marker in 1999 with a one race, one blood. Uh, he writes a book that uh, that uh, basically acknowledges that scripture. And he, of course, he's going to do some race baiting on evolution, but you know, people really misuse scripture to uh, to support racism. And in fact, uh, in fact, we are one race, one blood. And so the idea of uh, there being interracial marriage is a bizarre statement from a scriptural point of view, because from the scripture's point of view, there are no races. And so, you know, uh, and it's really, you know, after he publishes that book, and I'm sure there were some private conversations behind the scenes about this, you know, that, that Bob Jones in 2000 basically says, okay, well, we, our position was not scriptural. And, yeah. um, but that's exactly the same passage where, it, where um, that they really emphasize. And that same passage was used to both support racism and to end racism. Yeah. And that, that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's just, there's stuff in that verse that they just didn't, they couldn't see. Well, I think what happens in a lot of uh, fundamentalism is that it's very selective in reading. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, people pick the part that really, really, you know, I think ends up some, I mean, the risk is really picking the parts that don't challenge your worldview, but just really end up supporting it. Right. And, um, and in confirming it. And so they, they misread that passage and they did it in a way that was, um, you know, in some ways it can be sympathetic to because we all do the same thing. Uh, in some ways it's a little hard to be sympathetic to them because they really should have changed it and fixed it sooner. Yeah, I mean, it's hard when people 2000 make 2000 is really late <laughs> to be getting off that boat. Yeah, yeah, but we've seen that over and again. I, mean, I think it's hard for organizations. I mean, one of the things, another subplot in this book is how uh, I'm calling out a large organization uh, that's been well known for you know promoting you know evolution in the public square for making some very large mistakes in the science here and opposing things uh, on the grounds of science, and they had no evidence for that. And it's been very hard for them to adapt and change. I mean, they're kind of still stuck in some backward ways of thinking about this uh, for years now. Um, but it's they're just stuck because you know they they really made public they put down public markers, and that's hard to change. So, did you did you finish this? You were giving this historical account. And I don't know if we got sidetracked or if you actually see yourself as having finished it. Oh, yeah, I think that was a key thing. We were talking about how the race arose. I think that's the key thing. I mean, what, what I found in this, you know, it's interesting. When I, when I very first got involved in this, there was a, I gave a comment that, at a conference that I got into a bit of trouble with. Um, what happened was that, um, that, you know, frankly, you know, I didn't really want to talk about Adam and Eve. I didn't expect to be writing a book about Adam and Eve. But when I got a little more, you know, acquainted with the conversation, I just found out all these white people were talking about Adam and Eve, and that's all they cared about evolution. <laughs> I was getting a bit frustrated by it, right? And, you know, I was in St. Louis. Uh, we were kind of processing what had happened with Michael Brown, and um, and it was in 2017, and I, and I got up at the Biologos conference, and I said, you know, I think, you know, it's... This, these questions that we're coming to are very white questions, you know, about Adam and Eve and all that. But, you know, here in St. Louis, we're worrying about stuff and we're really worried about larger questions about larger questions, it seems. You know, I'm really wondering what the, the questions of the black church are about science. I, I got a lot of heat for that. <laughs> um, it was cited as one of the reasons why they kicked me off their speakers bureau. Now, I don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you, I was wrong about one thing. I mean, first of all, there, I, I don't really regret saying it that much, but I was wrong about one thing. It's true that the way how the, the conversation on its origins has been approached has really been just primarily addressing the questions of the white church. That's really true. But what I found is, is when you actually look at origins closely, you look at the history of what's happened, that, that these questions about Adam and Eve and origins and evolution are tightly bound up and entwined with the questions that that those of us that aren't white bring to the table about our own worth and dignity in the world. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, you know, race begins as a theory of origins. It's a false theory of origins. It began as a theological idea and it was really formalized and you know, into full on scientific systems. Uh, 
and and you know and it was used to really deny uh, the dignity and worth of people just like me and people in the african-american church and you know chinese friends of mine and all of that and in a way it also dehumanized white people too it really made them uh complicit and and kind of stuck into an inheritance of something that maybe even they personally wouldn't have chosen and so i was wrong in an important way while it's true that uh, that the conversation has been too defined by the questions of uh, of uh, that are brought you know to the table by people who uh who you know are not are not people like me the concerns of people like me well they are deeply germane to adam and eve and the questions of origins and that's what i've learned and uh that that profoundly shaped how i wrote this book and how we've been uh talking about it since it's been published one of the things that fascinated me and i think i got this in part from your book and in part from other places was steps along the way where um people would engage in a kind of um they'd offer some theory that we now know to be false and then they would correct it and sometimes they would correct it correct it on the grounds of scripture after having offered the theory as a scriptural thing and sometimes they would correct it on the grounds of science after offering a scientific justification for it right so the phylogenetic or philo what's uh polygenesis polygen polygenesis or poly philo or whatever yeah you do, that was the terminological thing i was unclear on actually so the but the idea that um the different human racial groups originated separately from each other appeared before darwin yeah and it was and it was justified from scripture it was justified from scripture and then, well, and then it was condemned it was answer, because of scripture. answer to a puzzle right? they saw it was the discovery of people in the new world and how do we make sense of that theologically because we found right. out that Augustine was wrong. There really were antipodians. There really were people who lived on the other side of the earth. So how do we make sense of that theologically? And the first person to offer a theological framework for it was really La Perere, who proposed polygenesis and suggested that those people over there really are real people, as we all know, and they just don't descend from, from Adam and Eve. But it turns out, he argued, that Genesis 1 talks about their creation and then Genesis 2 is talking about um, a different creation of people. So that's where it's the idea of God creating different sorts of people. That's what he said. And then the resistance to that came from people who said, but everyone's descended from Adam and Eve. Yeah, right? and so I think this discourse is really the key thing because this is long before evolution comes on the table. It has to do with antipodians. Right, yeah. And yeah. this is where it became, I would say, the way I describe it, the book, and I think this is correct, is that it became one of the demands of orthodoxy to affirm that we all descend from Adam. Adam and Eve. It's in yeah. the monogenesis tradition, monogenesis right. doctrine. And uh, that's what people thought was challenged by evolution. And that's why it was such a big deal. Because that is a deeply ingrained part of tradition. The Catholic Church affirms it. Several different denominations across the church affirm it in different ways with slightly different language. And even though it, it's articulated as about Romans 5, 12 through 14 in original sin, that's because it was in dialogue with uh, La Perere, who was arguing from Romans 5, 12 through 14 about original sin. And, um, and you know, he, you know, they were, came down hard. They basically said it's heresy to take a different view. And a large portion of the church, you know, I'm, you know, maybe they're wrong, but look, I'm just a mere scientist um, in retrospect of this it's centuries away. I'm very reticent to neglect uh, when large portions of the church say in a unified voice that a particular view is heresy. Like yeah. that's not something we should just kind of cast aside easily, especially yeah. if science doesn't demand it. But that was the hard choice that people face. It seemed like our best science was telling us that that heresy wasn't false. <laughs> that heresy was true. So you have to choose between um, that heretical position, according to much of the church, or 
um, or science. And, you know, that's what's created, like, the deep conflict. It just turns out that it was a misunderstanding of the science. Yeah, there's people yeah. on the other side of the earth. But they all descend from Adam and Eve. So <laughs> what exactly right. is the problem? <clears throat> and so... But, but then when Ad, when when Darwin does come along, yeah. it, it, you get the same thing happening. People bring the idea back up again, and and uh, and it's rejected as heretical again. And then and then, but it was also rejected on scientific grounds by the mid twentieth century. Yeah, so I mean, there was a big debate. I would say. I mean, I'd say basically, pe people were grappling with the reality that they thought they saw that there was profound differences between humans across the earth, but there's some sort of connection between us. How do we understand that diversity, that division um, that seems deeply innate in connection with our connection to one another? Like, how do we think about those two things? That was the fundamental uh, you know, challenge people were grappling with. And you can see all these different ways people tried to do it. Um, I don't think that there ever was consensus in science. I mean, you can see a very much an evolving uh, view of it and a lot of disagreement. However, um, the dominant view was polygenesis for a long time. And the, the, what polygenesis was changed over time, obviously. So, uh, you know, at one point, you know, it was a different species. Then it became, I mean, a lot of people would say the modern understanding of races is not distinct species, but it was modern, I mean, it was different subspecies. And, you know, I mean, that, that, to me, that seems like splitting hairs. It's not like we have a clear distinction between species and subspecies or incipient speciation right. and all that sort of stuff. So. So that's like splitting hairs. I mean, basically, the, and, and you can trace it back to the a medieval origin, some people will do, to say it's a little bit pre-modern, possibly, you know, with the Mongols and, and the in in Spain, maybe. I don't care. I mean, those are minor points. The whole point is it wasn't back in, you know, 2,000 years ago that people understood race that we do. And it really arose out of, a, you know, a clash of cultures and us really trying to make sense of large groups of people with totally different histories and stories that just seemed very, very different than us. And how do they fit into God's plan? How do they fit into our scientific understanding of the world? And, you know, what seemed most readily and obviously apparent just turns out to be flat out wrong. And we're still dealing with the after effects and the hangover and the inheritance of that grand, gigantic mistake. Yeah. I mean, in the 1940s, you still had people publishing books, arguing scientific books, arguing, not not like fringe books, that were that were defending polygenesis until DNA, really, right? Is that well, what? Well, I think the story much got right Templeton is a part of that story. Um, I think that you know some equation on Spencer's work is really good to read because it gives that story in a beautiful way too. It was really, I think, in the 1970s where some scientists, you know, first of all, DNA. You know, our knowledge of DNA was maturing, but, you know, there's some scientists and that were kind of coming to it with different sorts of questions. You know, Alan Templeton was Jewish, you know, his, you know, he, you know his, uh, his family had kind of dealt with like living through World War II and the Holocaust and all of that. And he, uh, no, I'm sorry, he became a Jew. He's a Jewish convert. And that's not true. Oh, so really? To be clear. Um, okay. But, you know, that's very much, though, in people's minds. There's a civil rights movement just a couple years previous, like Martin Luther King had been shot. Right. And he was working in um, doing doing work uh, internationally in Brazil at the time and just was struck at how Brazilians looked at race in a totally different way than Americans did. Yeah. That was kind of a shocking experience for him. And the reason why is that they are just kind of on the other end of the stick when it comes to a lot of colonialism. <laughs> but regardless... Um, it came. It brought him back to the question with genetic tools and new sorts of questions, and he started to look at, you know, are there different races? And he did some very foundational, critical work uh, in this space to just show that actually, you know, we're we're far more connected than we think. Right. And then more recently, um, that's part of the story. But I think more recently, some of the most exciting stuff has been over like the last ten to fifteen years with ancient DNA. A book I often point people to is um, Who We Are and How We Got Here by David Reich, where uh, what we can do is we can take uh, the remains of people from like thousands of years ago in the past and we can like, you know, grind up their bones and or teeth and get DNA out of it. We can sequence that DNA and then start to reconstruct the past with far more accuracy. And what we see over and over again, over and over again, is that not that there was these distinct populations in the past, but there was just massive interbreeding across the globe in ways that we just didn't think would, would, would be likely without modern ways of traveling. But that's just not true. It just turns out that, that 
you know, our ancestors knew how to get around. And, you know, it's a bit of a modern conceit to think that we are um, are locked into, a, I mean, that we're able to, you know, go across the globe merely because of a plane. I mean, they were just spent a lot more time doing it by other ways. Yeah, well, the old, the old land bridge theory certainly had that idea in it. They just thought of it as a very slow spread. Yeah. Rather it, than back and forth interaction. Yeah. Right? And that's the thing. I mean, like people were spreading, but if you're spreading in one direction, doesn't mean you're not ever going to go back the other direction. Right. So there's a point where right. you have to kind of pull back and think about it in a different way. Um, and so we're getting a much more um, beautiful view of history. We're finding out that, um, that we're all connected by ancestry. Like yeah. the way how the theologians were saying, no, it must be that we're connected by ancestry in the relative recent past. I mean, of course, some people gave up on that and said, okay, we have to at least connect by ancestry in the very distant past. <laughs> but, right. but it turns out that our best evidence in science tells us that that's actually the case, that we're all one family. We're all one race, the human race. But you're pulling it back much more recently <clears throat> than like mitochondrial Adam or, or mitochondrial Eve or... Yeah, so that ended up being a grand, grand distraction in, in really critical ways. It just turns out that, uh, I mean, there's a key paper published in 2004 in, in Nature by Daniel Chang and Gene Olson and others. And basically what, uh, what they were able to show was, uh, you know, it really seems like that everyone alive today might even share common ancestors as recent as just 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth. Yeah, this, the, the last paragraph I, of their article I quote in my book, I think it's beautiful. He said, they say, I can't tell you exactly. They say, but, you know, but all of our ancestors, you know, built the pyramids of Giza and tamed uh, the first horses on the steps of, of the right. Ukraine. And that, yeah, I mean, this, that, that they're all I, our ancestors. The, the, this sort of reminds me of the, the fact that most people today who have any European ancestry are descended from Charlemagne. It's not even that. I think the estimates are that if you have just, European just, ancestry, but then you, you span that same just seven hundred years back. So that means that you that just seven hundred years back. That's not that's very recent. Yeah. And um, what's critical about that is that I think they only found maybe around ten or so actual genetic stretches of DNA that were ubiquitous across Europeans, or you or ancestors that were uh, or evidence in DNA. But there was probably thousands and thousands of individuals that were just genetic ghosts and they, give you, they didn't actually pass any DNA onto you. So what's going on? I mean, a big part of it is that we're kind of figuring out both the strengths of what DNA tells us about the past, but also its profound limits. It can tell us maybe a couple things, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands and millions and millions and millions and frankly, billions and billions of stories that are true and real that it can't tell us. Yeah, you only get a partial snapshot because that's the of each ancestor, you got only half of their DNA. That's not even the right way to put it. It's right? kind of, you, got a, you got a partial glimpse through a people. A, a, a snapshot almost implies you see the whole picture. I mean, it's kind of like getting it's, a glimpse through a people. You get bits and pieces of each generation because that's all that survived. Yeah. And, and may, many generations you might not have anything from. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, genetics largely isn't talking about in, individuals, it's talking about large populations. Yeah, you have to have large data sets to actually conclude much. And it's making conclusions about populations, not people. And, right, right. And, and you know, uh, the stories we care about more are often connected to people, not populations, it turns out. Yeah. And so when we start making that switch between genetic language to the language of people, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of mismatch and our concepts and our understanding. And um, and that's true when people talk about, you know, Genghis Khan and Charlemagne. And it's also true about people talk about Adam and Eve. I think it's true about talking about race too. Oh yeah. And I mean, I think our racial terms refer <laughs> to actual groups. It's just that they're not what we thought they were. They're populations. Well, they are groups, but the way how we talk about race in the United States is not actually, I mean, they're constructed groups. They don't it make doesn't sense. line up with biological it was, populations. It's kind of consciously chosen to be in a way that doesn't match reality. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And deliberate, deliberate and non-deliberate things over many centuries. I mean, like a great example is, is a category of colored, right? So that was right. a legal category. Right. And most people at that time would understand Indians like me as Caucasian because we descended from the Caucasoid Mountains. That's right. what they say. 
Right. But we mixed with these Dravidians out there. And those Dravidians, like, they're, like, you know, they're dark-skinned. They, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't Caucasian. Um, and so we were out pure, really. Um, and so the argument for Indians was, like, yeah, but some of us are really white. And some of us are <laughs> just as racist as you. So we're, we're just as racist as a white person. So you should make us white. That was literally <laughs> the argument they took to, to the Supreme Court. <laughs> now... <laughs> That was the argument. Put quite that way, but... oh, that is exactly the argument. They said we're not willing to marry a black person either. Yeah, we're just like we're right. just like white people in that we yeah. have the same disgust of black people that you do. And so, I guess maybe I didn't read the 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 arguments. I thought I maybe had, but I guess maybe I didn't with that one. And so you don't have to worry about admitting us to the white person club because we're not going to pollute you by intermarrying with black people, right? And creating that problem for you. Right. That was their argument. Yeah. And um, I mean, you can. I mean, I think it's it's a. I mean, it, there's so much to say about that nonsense, right? Um, but you know, so but that but you know, the Supreme Court said, well, yeah, but it's obvious you're not white. So you know, maybe you're Caucasian by some scientific classification, but you're not white. So we're not going to. That's, that's just conflating two different meanings of the word white. And there's multiple more than two. There's many more than two. Well, I mean, white. But that argument is a terrible argument for that reason. It doesn't mean the they're not States, right. White has been about a racial or ethnic identity that's distinct uh, about of, of insiders keeping outside people or outsiders. Right. And one of the groups that to be kept outside was Indians. It was Indians, Asians, uh, you yeah. know, black people, and like you know, and I mean, I think what's really interesting about the debates about in the Indian court cases is that. Um, it really clearly delineates, you know, basically what the terms were of entering into the white person club mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the fully American club, you know, there right. were terms. I mean, right. it was not, and it was basically, you have to be willing to really support our view of race and, if, yeah. and you have to fit into that. And if you don't, you know, you're one of those crazy minorities that isn't going to be fully welcome here. Right. And so, I mean, and that carries through today. Like, you know, when I made that comment at Biologos, you know, I don't think what I said was offensive, but people were deeply offended. Um, I mean, the irony of it about it is I ended up writing a book about their concerns, Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's imprecise. And I think there's a way to say what you said that's less likely to cause offense. And well, get the information you know, in across. Context, what happened? Um, there were a lot of people who were deeply offended by it, but there was a lot of people. I would say probably the majority of people who uh, who actually found it was deeply refreshing to hear that there was more yeah. of the world than merely like this internal debate amongst Christians. I don't think I said anything wrong um, or um, inappropriate, actually. To be clear, I don't. I, I'm not sure it was false, but it depends on what you mean by white. Well, well I, it's it's, yeah. it's not a way that I prefer I, I, to use it that. Depends on the precise terms of what I said. It's worth considering that. You know, I asked biologists to give me a recording of it. They weren't willing to do so. Huh. Um, I think uh, I think it's probably because it's far more defensible than they wanted to present it. Yeah. But, uh, but as I recall, this was like 2017. The way I said it was, uh, you know, I said, you know, I mean, because I was asked up to give give a just a short brief thing, and I was asked to actually talk about race and how I'm thinking about race. Um, they actually asked me to talk about race too and i just said yeah you know we're really uh you know you know we're really trying to do a better job of engaging society with questions of science and you know as a person who's in actually st louis i'm really you know you know I, i'm just really struck by how this conversation doesn't really engage the questions of race and if you look around even here this is a very white audience you know and there's like maybe three, there's like a group of like 300 people. And I think there's maybe three people with dark skin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said that and you could just see how everyone there, I mean, I, I knew where all of them were. They all kind of looked at me and you just, you could see them just completely queuing in. And look at me, I'm just saying, you know, I think this is just, I just thought this is a really white conversation. And I'm really, you know, and I just think that, there need, that we need to do better. There needs to be more people, um, you know, that, that aren't white in this conversation. And I think that, and I, and I think that, we need to really be sensitive to those questions. I really want to know what the questions of the black church are. And, and I've been talking to black people and it just, Adam and Eve isn't the question they bring up. That's just not the concern they care about. And that's all we're talking about here. I, I just think that, 
you know, it's just a very narrow question. We need to be thinking more broadly. This is like my summary of what I said and definitely what I was thinking at the time, you know. And um, a lot of people actually are very tired of origins, even in that community. They, I mean, they came up to me and thanked me and said, you're so correct. Why are we just talking about Adam and Eve and not talking about these questions of race? And these were white people saying it too. So it wasn't offensive. Yeah. I think what happened was is that some people felt, I mean, like race is hard to talk about. I think most people talk about race, talk about it in a way that's just um, degrading to everyone involved, including white people. <clears throat> yeah. and white people are the enemy. And so, you know, some people just took it as a, an angry black man getting up and saying something. You know, that's the stereotype, yeah. right? Right, right. And so I was really reprimanded harshly for that. And, um, you know, I apologized at the time, too. I mean, I wasn't angry. And I'm not even black. <laughs> But, um, and I apologize, and you know, one of, and I look back on that time, that was one of my great regrets. I really should not have apologized. I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I was, I was incorrect that the questions of Adam and Eve were disconnected from the questions of the church, I mean, the, the, the black church. The black church, no yeah. One really that, connected. that part I was wrong about. What, what, the part that I think gets people with, at least the way you first framed it, when you first said it to me, rather than what you just said, uh, saying that these are white questions. The thing that I think angers people about that way of talking, if that's the way you put it, is that um, there's, there's... Oh, I know what makes people angry. We're, we're supposed to be... Response. They can we're say, well, what do you mean? <laughs> we're supposed to be moving away from thinking of certain things as being innate to white people and other things as being innate to other people, right? And, and they think that you, I don't think no, but, the, but that's how they it. see what you're saying. That's how they hear it. Oh, well, they're kind of confused. That. <laughs> and anger to something confusing. Well, that's why I'm saying, not I'm saying it's, a, it's, it's not a precise way of putting it. There are more precise ways of putting it that, that won't, that will deliberately uh, move away from that perception. Well, look, I think actually this... and the way you, the way you just put it does that the way you, you put it a couple minutes ago just does that well. Uh, it, what it was, I'm just saying is like, look, it's, I think it was a I think race is a hard conversation in our country, right? I think it's confusing. Oh yeah, everyone's got their their shield. I'm very sympathetic, and I, but I want to say that this is actually a beautiful example of how it dehumanizes us. Look, I get. Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I, even in that moment, I could see how what I was saying could be uncomfortable for some people because they just rather we just never even mention race. But remember, I was asked right. to talk about race. Right. Yeah. And some of the discomfort is discomfort at things that should be changed. Yeah, and, and some so, of the know, discomfort is discomfort that they they feel like you're going the wrong way, and there's something to it because they're misunderstanding you. But some of this discomfort is because they're you're sort of you're 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 scratching somewhere at that they don't want scratched. Yeah, I think that right? that's that's well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just what, it's, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is a, a real clear it's actually a very clear example of how this conversation is just dehumanizing for everyone look i get it i mean like the, the language that was used to describe this was pretty extreme they said i was shaming everyone in the room and that is not the case and they're saying that i was going negative by ne recognizing the fact that there was barely any black people in the room that is not going negative that is stating the fact that there was not a lot of black people in the room it was interesting the response. They said, you're not taking into account that we're doing better than most people here. I'm like, okay. I mean, that doesn't change the fact that that wasn't the case and we can still mourn this. And so, um, so in a lot of ways, it was very dehumanizing for me because I kind of went up and I said something that was very true. It wasn't shameful, shaming people. It, it was completely factual, um, except for that one place where I made an error where I just, I just talked about. And uh, I even really quickly backed off of it privately to the point of, you know, of, of, of like apologizing, but it turned out to be an unforgivable sin there to say something that, you know, was difficult about race. I mean, it was one of the reasons why they asked me to leave. Yeah. And, and um, that was deeply dehumanizing. And, you know, later that year, you know, that was like the 50th, I mean, where it's, you know, the year before this, the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King, you know, uh, there was a Stockley verdict in St. Louis. And uh, what I saw was the reality, and I still see this, is, you know, a large number of, you know, white people with white people concerns um, of the biggest problem in the room is if, you know, racism gets talked in a way that makes us feel bad, uh, you know, just taking, you know, 
someone like me who wasn't an angry black person kind of painting me with that, that you know, that stereotype and kicking me out. I mean, that, that was a pretty rough experience. Now, on their end, to be clear, I think it was deeply humanizing for them, too, because they've actually clearly gone through stuff where, you know, people have talked about race in a way that excludes them entirely from the conversation, neglects their concerns entirely. And that has shamed them. I mean, like, the only reason why someone would yeah. say what I was saying was shameful or was shaming them is if they've been shamed over issues of race in the past, because I wasn't. Right. Right. And yeah. So, they, they hear people pointing out the absence of non-white people in the group in a way that makes it clear that they're, they're shaming them. <laughs> and they're, they're really yeah. concerned that their voice is being taken away. So what it does, I mean, so that's deeply humanizing. So what they do is they make a monstrous response. <laughs> Right. frankly, to something that's not a human response to, to, to this. So, you know, you know, in a way, you know, in a way, in one way, I mean, it's a tension, right? In one way, I'm indignant and I think it's completely ridiculous. And this is not the way the world is supposed to be. The other way I'm, I'm very sympathetic. I mean, I don't think it's just that there's evil people just like pulling this out of nowhere. I mean, they're reflecting the brokenness, the fallenness of our world. And, um, and in some way they're rebelling against it, but they're not doing so in a healthy way. Well, what's really striking about it, you know, is I, uh, you know, I've been probably the most, uh, probably been among the most, well, yeah, I I am among the most for sure. And some people would argue, you know, the most, but that's a different question. A prominent person in the origins conversation that's not white. And what's striking about it is that they've just been unwilling to even have a conversation about these things with me. Just not even that. And I was actually working with them. You know, that, that, that's just sad. I mean, that's just not the way the world is supposed to be. You know, there's an opportunity for us to move past these things together. Everything that I've seen happen um, is forgivable. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, it's not even really a story. I'd say it's a reality. It's a truth is what's happened with Daryl Davis, who is this blues singer that would just hang out with people doing blues and music is this thing that really brought thing, people together. So uh, you know, for you know, decades, he would be hanging out with white people in the deep south. And you know, you know what? There's a lot of racism there. It turns out that he met a lot of KKK, Ku Klux Klan members. And what he would do instead of um, just disassociating from them is he'd just have conversation with them and talk to them. And over the years, uh, what would happen is that after talking with them is that they would, one by one, they would come to him and, and, and actually give them his robe, their robe, their KKK robe, saying, you know, you can have this. I was wrong. Wow. I mean, <laughs> KKK members out of their robes. And so, is that amazing? Yeah. And he has them on display at his house. Uh, <laughs> and he's just like, he's not an academic. He's just a guy who actually just treated these KKK members like they were humans, too. Yeah. And was able to engage them but it was only possible because they were able to talk together and communicate right and right. so you know if there's forgiveness and grace for the kkk for the clansmen i'm i'm certain there's forgiveness for me i'm certain there's forgiveness for you and i'm certain there's forgiveness for everyone else including the people who've done me wrong yeah um and so i think it's possible but the thing about it is it's only really able to make po- progress to those things that we all care about is if there's conversation it's funny um uh it, we just did a video that's gotten a lot of traction. It's been interesting yesterday with Bill Craig. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw it yesterday. I haven't watched it yet, no. But um, he invited uh, Ken Ham into dialogue with him about his book on origins. After Ken Ham had posted the... Uh, yeah, the, Ken Ham posted his thing. He came on my uh, podcast to respond. And he, and he did. He responded. Um, and it's a really great um podcast i think but of course it's my podcast you can you can listen and make me the judge yourself but the one of the best parts of it is that that uh, that you know bill craig actually just invites him to dialogue about it now how most people responded to that was just saying although there's no chance that um that ken ham is going to respond and maybe they're true but i want to believe that god made ken ham in the image of god i don't think that he's outside the reach of an appeal to do the right thing maybe he will who knows, right? So you're envisioning maybe having the two of them on together? Wouldn't on that be podcast? great? That'd be Wouldn't that be great? I think that we can hash out our differences and understand each other better. Yeah. Now, that's the idealist to me speaking. That's the one who knows that we're made in the image of God. And I think it's true. 
at the same time, the reality is that we're in a fallen world. I think the reality is, is that it's very likely that he's not going to be willing to. And I think that's also supposed to be instructive for us. You know, when people are willing to talk, it demonstrates a transparency and openness, a humility, an ability to actually obey Christ's command to live in community across our disagreements. And when they're not willing to talk, I think that also displays something too. Um, I think heresy tends to hide. Um, You know, corruption tends to hide. You know, they like to do things in secret. They like to do things outside of dialogue with the rest of the church. And so that's, that's I think, ends up going to be ending up being really where it's going to be very easy for people to see, you know, who is hiding uh, from a community who's trying to engage. And, you know, I've, I've consistently invited uh, Biologos into conversation, too. I really want to engage with them and understand this. And they, they just have not, they don't, I mean, they, they're, they're, they really engage with me, probably very similar to how Ken Ham is going to likely engage with Bill. You Carter. mean the leadership of the organization? Because you've had conversations with individuals, right? I think that uh, I think Biologos is just an organization, right? I mean, it's there's a lot of individual people out there that um, that agree with them on different things that have had no connection to this at all, right? So I'm just talking about the there's people who've written stuff for them that you've had conversations with. Is what I'm thinking. Uh. No, not since oh, then. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I, I used to have a lot of friends there. I think that yeah. um, I think the the way it played out and has played out is that um, I think it's hard for them to be honest. I mean, I think they they made some large mistakes on on the science scientific stuff, and, and and I think when people make mistakes, it's a very natural instinct to want to keep it private. And I think they've been really working hard to keep the whole thing private. Yeah. But the problem is that when large mistakes are made, I mean, I think it really demands transparency. And that's not really, um, I mean, I think that's probably what this is. It's a clash of two non-negotiables. You know, yeah. transparency is non-negotiable for me right now. And I think tra- the lack of transparency, or however you want to put it, um, maybe the positive way to put it is confidentiality, but I don't even think that's the right way to put it because a lot of stuff we're talking about isn't even confidential. Um, I think- uh, No, but I mean, I think the way they see what they're, they're doing- right? What? I think the way they see what they're doing is let's just not have anything wrong on our site. <laughs> so let's only have the, the correct stuff because we don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that's sure true. what their reasoning is for that, but that that's seems definitely not true. They, they, definitely they took it down though. They took their the, website that they won't correct. <laughs> they stuff that they took down. Cause you took, you told them you pointed out problems in it, right? No, they took it down because it was becoming untenable and there was um, a, a lot of people internally and privately demanding that it be taken down. Right. So they have taken stuff down. But what you're worried but about is that they're not admitting why. it. They're not, they're not admitting it and they're not saying what the reasons were publicly. They're not issuing an errata or a, a, well, some so kind they, of... I think they, they did have... Um, well, the thing about it, I think a really key thing is when did they know it was an error? They knew it was an error back in 2018. You know, when did one of the authors actually come back and say that it should be taken down? I mean, I know one of the key authors of the article said that in 2019. You know, I mean, I've been telling them for years. And um, their response has always been, you know, we need to move on. Let's focus about the the future. I said, well, yeah, but you keep on citing that paper as as good science. Like, if you're going to keep on citing it, it's part of the present. (laughs) And so, and you're not even talking about, I mean, that's an issue. You know, you have to really correct the record here. When they, they did publish an article that did not reference the article I asked them to take down, or not to take down, to retract, right? Um, and that article, uh, they, you know, it says a lot. You know, it didn't actually go out to their mailing list. It didn't reference that article. And it really buried it and kind of claimed that they, um, that this is just all a normal part of science. And, and really just, uh, I think it really did, a, it really, it was more of a statement of innocence than an actually a really, you know, a, a real, you know, clarifying the situation. Um, and like it was all fixable, you know. I asked them, "Hey, can you just please take that down?" And they were they were unwilling to do so. I'm oh, sorry, not take that down, put it back up. And you know, oh, you, you know, wanted them to repost it, but have a, a explanation of why. Explain the science of what you got wrong. I mean, it's not yeah. something that's supposed to shame you or be. Right. This is something. You know, it's funny. I um, I talk often about the high standards of high high standards of, of science, but. What we're talking about here is just like the standards of like a neighborhood newspaper. We're not talking about, I mean, it's not that high standards that, that we're at really asking for here. I mean, it's very possible, maybe even likely that um, it was just deleted 
um, as an oversight without thinking through that, that's possible. But that's why it's important. I just asked them to be back online and they're not willing to. I think that that's, that's that, you know, maybe it was a slight, you know, just an oversight initially. I can completely believe that. But, you know, the unwillingness after a year to, to clarify the matter is really concerning. Now, privately, people have just emphasized, I mean, I had, that they know that there was errors with it. Well, at least some people have. But the problem with saying things like that in private, but not willing to ever say it in public, well, you know, that really ends up being deeply misleading and confusing for people. And I just want them to clarify and clean the record there. And, you know, um, their, their strategy is very similar to Ken Ham's about this. I mean, they're treating me much like how Ken Ham is likely to going to treat, you know, Bill Craig. They, they don't want to have a conversation. They want the conversation to end. And, in fact, um, that's why I'm a difficult person is because I really want these things to be done in a trustworthy way. Now, of course, in the end, you know, they're their organization and they can do whatever they want. I don't have any control of their policies if they don't want to be transparent about this. So if that is entirely their right. And they're not doing anything illegal, as far as I know. They're not doing anything illegal. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean the conversation ends for the rest of us. Right. That doesn't mean that... Um, I mean, that actually probably puts a greater responsibility on the rest of us to clarify the situation and what's happened. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be talking about this if I had confidence that they were going to address this publicly and transparently. Um, and uh, I hope eventually they come around to it. I mean, and if they don't, that's okay. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, with, with, you know, I really do think about what happened with Bill Craig and Ken Ham. Um, one way, it's interesting to see too, like when I made appeals to young creationists like Bill Craig did to Ken Ham, one, uh, I actually got very negative feedback from people. Uh, and it's striking. People will get even angry with me uh, from the anti-creationist side saying, he's not honest he will never respond that way to what whoever the person is why are you even asking to dialogue with them which i find to be a deeply dehumanizing statement it means that they've totally given up on that person they don't they think that that person's beyond an appeal to the good <laughs> and i just don't think that that's reality i think that um that as bad as things can seem that god's given us the image of god i think that no one is beyond an appeal to the good and right. and uh there's an opportunity for a beloved community and i and i hope it's going to require conversation i think it's good that we continue to invite creationists to be in conversationists whether they be of the evolutionary creationist side type or of the young earth creationist type to just really invite them to be in conversation with us to really try uh you know sort this out together and start living together as a family of god and, you know, even for non-Christians, you know, maybe it's not the family of God, but, you know, remember Martin Luther King, he talked about the kingdom of God, too. He talked about the beloved community. You know, there's an opportunity for us to move from a fractured society to a beloved community. That's, that's the opportunity to have, and that's the one we should take. Join us next time for another episode of the Parable Man podcast.